Hello and welcome to the True North Podcast with me, Jamie Hustis, as your host. In this podcast, I am bringing to you the circle of people I have had the honor of learning from and who have inspired me greatly throughout my diverse sports medicine career. You'll hear conversations and insights from professionals in the health and fitness space, athletes of all varieties, and like-minded individuals with the intention of educating how to optimize athletic performance, combat injury, and improve lifestyle mindset. Thank you for joining in. Now, when you come down to it, it isn't just ice. It's rest, ice, compression, and elevation. They're all wrong. The RICE protocol traps the waste in and around the damaged site and prevents the natural flow of oxygen and supplies. All right. Welcome to the True North podcast. Today I have with me Gary Reinel. He has spent over 50 years in the sports medicine field with diverse experiences ranging from training professional athletes to pioneering the field of strength building for women during the pregnancy year to developing rehabilitation programs for injured workers. Additionally, his groundbreaking senior citizen strength building protocol has now been implemented in more than a thousand senior living facilities. Gary has authored two previous books prior to the book that we're gonna be discussing today, titled Making Mama Fit and Get Stronger, Feel Younger. This latest work, Iced, the illusionary treatment option, sparked a revolution within countless professional and collegiate athletic training rooms. Um, I have definitely been one of those people. Uh, the forward in this book, the Iced book, is written by Dr. Kelly Starrett, who is a very well-known physical therapist within the CrossFit space and beyond, having written numerous books, including Becoming a Supple Leopard. And there's also a forward by Dr. Gabe Merkin, the physician who coined the RICE or Rest Ice Compression Elevation Protocol. Gary has been on some top podcasts such as the Power Monkey Podcast with Olympian gymnast Dave Durante and highly acclaimed Olympic lifter, weightlifter Chad Vaughn and also on the Squat University podcast with Dr. Aaron Horshig. So I am stoked that Gary has agreed to chat with me today and discuss this highly debated topic on icing injuries as a form of treatment. So today the question is to ice or not to ice. I have had the pleasure of talking with Gary on topics such as this previously, and so I've been really looking forward to this conversation today. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? I'm doing spectacular, Jamie. How are you doing? Oh, really good. I am so grateful that you are willing to hop on with me today to talk about this topic. Um, I'm sure you get a lot of pushback whenever you start talking about this. And uh, you have a very, very good way of explaining um, why icing injuries isn't necessarily the best, best treatment modality for us. Well, I'm happy to be here and thanks for having me. Yeah. So to start off here, um, could you talk about uh, where did this idea of icing injuries start? Like, where did this come from? Well, it depends on whose history book you're reading, but <laughs> th there are people that say that back in, uh, in the early days of medicine that they put ice on damaged tissue in Greece. And, and I asked, well, where did they get the ice from? So, I mean, I hear these stories, but like, so where'd they get the ice from? How, how are they doing that? It's, it's <laughs> hot there. So did someone run up the mountain and then run back down with it? 
there, there are so many pretend stories. The, 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 the first time I have found it credibly written down uh, is when you go into the history books and you see that there were a few military uh, experiments uh, back in the 50s and 60s putting cold on tissue for pain relief. Uh, and that's probably true. Uh, the confusion started in 1978 when Dr. Gabe Merkin wrote the book uh, where he coined the term RICE, Rest, Ice, Compression, Elevation. That's when the confusion started. That's when people started doing it normal. It was, this is what you do. Sure. And, I, and I say it that way because when I was an athlete, competing athlete back in the 60s, for everyone who doesn't know what that means, that's the previous century. Uh, when, <laughs> when, when I was competing, uh, I never heard one person ever use ice. Never. No coach ever. There were no, tra- there were no athletic trainers. I mean, at best in the stands, we may have had the, uh, the nurse of the local dentist in the stands. We had, there were no medical people with, at our games. Mm-hmm. And I remember if you bumped your knee or twisted your ankle, got hit by a foul ball or jammed your finger in basketball or whatever, the coach told you, keep moving. Don't sit still. It'll tighten up. And the, the big phrase was, walk it off. Yeah. And, and we all knew that was true. Now, I don't ever recall anybody ever asking, why does that work? We just knew that if you sat still, it tightened up and you couldn't move it very well and it would swell. But if you kept moving, that didn't happen. And if you paid attention to what was going on then, you got better instead of playing again. And that's all we really cared about. No one ever said to me, oh, by the way, that's your passive lymphatic system moving the waist out of the congested area. That's why yeah. it's not stiff and swollen. I never heard the word lymphatic ever, never as, yep. as, a, as an athlete. Not, not once ever did I hear back in the 60s and then even to the, to the early 70s. And then when Dr. Merkin put the protocol out, uh, things went uh, a completely different direction because uh, it made sense. And as I was told by many clinicians that I have spoken to over the years, and I mean hundreds of clinicians, have said when they first learned the rice protocol, it was rest, size, compression, elevation, rice. Rice is nice. Rice is nice. I got it. Rice is nice. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and then that was it. That, that was what you learned. And that's and, what you did. <laughs> and, you, and you never thought about it again. You just kind of did it. Uh, as it turns out, Dr. Merkin, um, who I have been to his home and I have spoken to him on numerous occasions, more, about a dozen times I've spoken to him, uh, and I've been to his home a couple of times, Dr. Merkin, when he made it up, uh, just put it together and said, here, here's a, here's a good thing to do. This, this looks like this is happening in society. And he named it RICE. Now, actually, back in the early 70s, another doctor called it ICE, I-C-E, ICE compression element, or rest. Wait, what would ICE be? What the heck? Yeah, it was R-I-C, right? And didn't Merkin add well, the E? Well, Merkin added the E for elevation because he thought Rick wasn't very catchy. But th- there was just the protocol ICE, ICE compression elevation. Okay. That's, that's all there was back in the beginning days. And then Merkin changed it and made it RICE. So we had this little situation going on where the therapists and the clinicians were starting to come to sports. Now, you got to follow this back. If you're not old enough to know this and and you never studied it, you may not know this, but 
Back in the 70s, there weren't outpatient physical therapy centers specializing in sports injuries. There, there was just no such thing. In fact, sports medicine really wasn't a, a known topic. That's, that's not what it was called. It wasn't called anything. It was called orthopedics. Right. And so now we have these outpatient physical therapy clinics opening up and insurance companies would reimburse for the services provided by the therapist, the physical therapist mostly, but there were also occupational therapists. At that time, there were a few athletic trainers, but they, they wouldn't reimburse for athletic training services back then. But So they had this process going inside the sports medicine clinic that ice was reimbursable. So if you put a bag of ice on someone's leg, you got $15. So basically, everyone got a bag of ice at the end of their therapy session because it was another $15 you could bill for. It was a billable thing, yep. And that, that was the process. So oh, now, about in the early 80s, it's starting to get popular and, and known. And someone invented a way to carry an ice pack in your, in your bag, your pocketbook or your, your gym bag or whatever you had. If you were the coach or the, a mom or whatever, you could click this little thing, like snap it, and it would become cold. It would become an ice pack. Mm-hmm. And then that became what you did to everybody. Billy bumped his knee. Put an ice pack on it. Okay. Oh, you jammed your finger. Put an ice pack on it. And everybody had them in their bag. So it became what we did. And that, then the athletic trainers came to the sidelines. And nowadays, of course, nearly every a sporting event at any high school or college level, certainly in the pros, it's not even a question, but at, at almost every level, there's an athletic trainer on the field or nearby during any competitive sports. In yep. fact, even during a lot of practices, there's an athletic trainer out there. Yep. Well, the athletic trainers weren't allowed to do very much. Yep. They, they, could, <laughs> they could put ice on you. We could put ice on it and put some stim on it. Yep. So that became what they did. And you could carry it in a container and you could have it out there. And the athletic trainers would put ice on it and became more and more popular somewhere around the early 90s. And by the way, if anybody wants to see this whole story, I, I have a whole chapter in my book, How This Happened. Uh, so if you really want to see it, you can go to my book and you can read it. But what happens next is in the 90s, uh, insurance companies stopped reimbursing for ice. And suddenly it wasn't so needed in outpatient physical therapy centers. Sure. And it's like, well, wait a minute, what just happened there? And then when you, when you go down the path and you see it starts to fall out of favor because it wasn't reimbursable. But the general public remembered. Yep. And they continued to ice basically anything that goes wrong. Now, that's with, by the way, uh, you'll see in pro sports, um, and which I have over 100 pro teams that I have the trainer's phone numbers and I speak to them, uh, and I can tell you that they still ice. Now, why do they do that? Well, if you ask them that, it gets very tricky because they'll say things that just aren't true. Not, not, not meaning that they're not telling the truth. It's that they'll do it, still, to, they say, to prevent swelling. Yeah, it's what we were taught in school. Okay, yep. well, that, but that's yep. not true. It doesn't prevent swelling. Uh, it never did, never can, never will. And no matter what, no matter how you do it. But if you if you say, well, but it, but doesn't it slow down circulation? Yeah, it slows down circulation. But when the tissue rewarms, the inflammatory response resumes, and the fluid comes. Yep. So it's not that there's too much fluid coming to the damaged site. It's that there's too little leaving. Now. Yep. 
that begins the explanation of what you're really supposed to do. If you think that there's too much swelling in and around the damaged site, pause for a minute, please. And just, I know that you know this, but just to the audience, pause for a minute and say to yourself, do you really think that your innate intelligence would send the wrong amount of fluid every time under all conditions to every person, every time someone got hurt? Do you, do you really think your innate intelligence would get that wrong every time, no matter what happened to everybody? Yeah, our body's system, our, all, the, the, all the parasympathetic stuff, everything, all the signals to the brain is going to overreact. That's now, kind of what people are saying in some ways. Well, but if you think about that and you say, now, wait a second, how does it work? Well, how it works is that your immune system, as soon as you're hurt, as soon as the damage occurs and blood escapes the vessels, so signals are set off in your body that cause the vessel to constrict. So the damaged vessels constrict convert ingredients in the blood, clotting factors and such, to grow a clot, repair the vessel, dissolve the clot, and normalize flow in some three to 10 days or so. Comma, and the healthy surrounding vessels dilate and increase perfusion. In other words, increase the flow to the damaged site area. So do you really think that the system, the innate intelligence, that mm -hmm. is so good at doing the clotting and the converting and the healing, the mending of the tissue and normalizing flow. Do you think on the back half it sends the wrong amount of fluid to the damaged site? Well, then you just have to ask the question, what's the purpose of the fluid? Why is it coming? Yeah, well, it's, and it's, why it's, should we interfere? Yes. Well, it's carrying the repair and cleanup crew. Now, you can get technical with all the words if you want, but it's the repair and cleanup crew, the macrophage, the insulin-like growth factor the uh, neutrophils. So that's what's coming to the stem cells. Everybody's being recruited to the damaged site to fix it. So you tell me you're going to make it cold to prevent swelling. And then I asked you, but when the tissue rewards, won't the inflammatory response in the fluid come? And you would say, yes, because it does. But, mm -hmm. but then you say, well, wait a minute. Do I really want to slow down the repair and cleanup group and get into the damaged site? Well, but, but wait, if I did that, would that affect what's called platelet aggregation and adhesion? I know they're big words, and I don't, sorry, there's just no way around it. No, that's but, okay. But that's, the, that's what's basically controlling the clotting factor. So are you sure you want to disrupt the flow to the damaged site of the repair and cleanup crew that's responsible for close, for growing, a, converting ingredients into blood, grow, growing a clot, and mending the vessel? Are you sure you want to disrupt that? And so far, no one's ever told me, yes, they want to disrupt that. Well, then why would you put cold on it? And now if you want to ask a really hard question, almost in parentheses to the whole point, after 40 years of widespread use, tens of millions of individual treatment sessions, can you give me, and I don't expect you to answer this, so rhetorically, I'll answer the question I ask. <laughs> can you tell me the actual protocol? In other words, how cold should you make the tissue? What temperature are you trying to get it to? How long should you keep it at that temperature? How do you accommodate for the insulin layers of fat? In other words, if someone is 7% fat or someone is 24% fat, how would you accommodate for those insulin layers of the fat? Because remember, you're trying to get to some temperature. But before you even try to get it to a temperature, I want you to tell me where you got the number from. So how, how did you determine that blank temperature is the temperature you want to get the damaged site to? So let's just say it's 72. Where did you get that number from? There's nothing in the literature to suggest anything remotely in that, in that category. 
So, mm-hmm. so you tell me you're going to make it cold, but you don't know how cold you're going to make it. You don't know how you're going to accommodate for the insane layers of fat. You're always going to put a barrier between the ice and the skin because you don't want to kill nerve, skin, or muscle cells because that's what will happen if you make them too cold. And then on top of that, you tell me that you don't know what temperature you're going to get it to, nor do you ever make any attempt whatsoever to, to tell me when you're at that temperature, nor is there anything in the literature whatsoever regarding a protocol that says how long you should keep it at that temperature. And then on top of that, you have nothing that even remotely suggests whether a deep bone bruise and a superficial muscle bruise should be at different temperatures. And if they are at different temperatures, what are those temperatures and where'd you get those numbers from? See, the point of all this, I could go on with 50 points. In my book, I put them all down. But I could go on for almost an unbelievable amount of time answering you those (laughs) simple questions. And the fact is, after after 40 years of widespread use and tens of millions of individual treatment sessions, you don't even have a protocol. Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah. there's there's one that's one that's accepted, like the 20 minutes or the post-surgical. It's like 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off. But it's uh, based but on like what you're saying, mean. you're not you can't measure that. Everybody's going to be so different with like, is your quad really getting to, like you said, a certain temperature or are we getting deep enough? And that's always been the debate, too. And then and how we do just you don't have the answer to that. How do yeah. you get deep without destroying the superficial tissue? Exactly. And then, exactly. by the way, if you look in the literature, which I reference very often, Dr. Merkin actually referenced when he publicly recanted. I know you mentioned that he wrote the forward to my book, but he publicly recanted after he read my book, said, look, I made this up. I was wrong. Don't do it. And then he gives a specific reference to the fact that it caused additional damage. And that's actually regarding uh, uh, non-freezing uh, injury, which uh, occurs when you put ice on damaged tissue post-op. So, yeah, let's let's put an asterisk by that real quick, because I think that's really, really powerful that Dr. Gabe Merkin, who you've had multiple conversations with, read your book, had conversations and was willing to recant the rice protocol that he developed that's been so widely accepted and still used today. Um, I think that's really, really an earmark for people to pay attention to. So if he's recanting his statement. I think everybody else should take a hard look at that as well. Well, so, I'll, give, I'll give you another <laughs> another spot that, that really adds, uh, yes, Dr. Merkin recanting is important. And I, I'm very grateful that he was honest enough to admit what he said was wrong. Yeah, that's but, amazing. Uh, at the National Athletic Trainers Association meeting in Philadelphia this past June, uh, were you were you at that? I did not go this year. Well, if you Google or however it is you get into your account, uh, you'll see there was a presentation by Dr. Tom Kamensky from the University of Delaware. And the protocol or the title of the presentation was Weaning Off the Rice Protocol. I'm making a uh, note now. Yes. So what he did was not only did he put my book up and tell the audience to read it. And by the way, the room was packed. Every seat was filled. The aisles were filled. And there were five deep in the back of the room. Well, right. the, the room was filled. And he put my book up and he said, read this guy's book. He's figured this out and you need to understand this. He then put quotes up by me and gave credit to me for the quotes and then put a podcast up, a recent podcast that I'd done and said, you should listen to this podcast. Now, you got to follow that through. This is director of education. He's also one of the national leaders. If you Google Tom Kamensky, University of Delaware, you'll see that he's one of the top 
athletic trainers in the country academically on ankle injuries and concussions. So this isn't like just some passing ATC giving a presentation in the corner. Right. This is, this is one of your leaders. Yeah. And he's not only telling you to wean the rice protocol, he's recommending that you actually read my book, listen to my podcast and change what you're doing now. Yep. So why, why does that matter? We've turned the corner over a million people have heard my anti rice message. Now, when you come down to it, it isn't just ice. It's rest, ice, compression, elevation. They're all wrong. What's wrong with rest? Well, rest is what stops everything from moving. <laughs> so you're trying to move the waste and bring in the nourishment. So you're trying to, you're trying to change the environment. Rest, stillness is the enemy. So, so you get to ice then. You say, well, what does ice do? Well, ice slows it down even more. And then what about compression? Well, the problem with compression is, is the compression slows it down even more. And you say, Drops well, what, everything. Well, <laughs> it's called a tourniquet if you go tight enough. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then now on top of that, they then say, well, then elevate. And I say, well, elevate. What, what do you think elevating? Oh, it helps with the swelling. No, it does not. And if you look in your textbook and you look up the lymphatic drainage process, you will quickly see that it's a passive system. Mm-hmm. it's fully activated by activating the muscles in around the damaged site. Yep. And sticking your foot up in the air does not make the waste drain out of your foot. That's not how it works. Now, put your foot in the air and do ankle pumps. That'll work. Yep. But putting your foot yeah. in the air doesn't do anything. So here we've got this protocol where you're trying to bring in nourishment and flush out waste. And you're doing the exact opposite, which was interesting in the beginning of your, your talk here. You made a comment that the, the people are are believing that they're actually improving the situation. And in fact, you use the words, why it's not the best protocol. Actually, it's the worst protocol. <laughs> if I was going to invent the worst thing you could do post-trauma to prevent healing and make you miserable, I would tell you it will do the RICE protocol. Because what it does is the RICE protocol traps the waste in and around the damaged site and prevents the natural flow of oxygen and supplies. And I asked all the clinicians, all the, anybody listening to this, does anybody think it's a good idea to trap the waste in and around the damaged site and prevent the natural flow of oxygen and supplies? No. So far, no one's ever <laughs> said yes, by the way. Now, by the way, I also, for anyone who wants to read this, and I believe I sent it to you, and if I didn't just tell me, I'll send it to you and you can post it. I was asked by uh, the editor-in-chief of one of your journals, one of the athletic journals, uh, to write a rebuttal to two professors who were saying the Rice Protocol was great. And I said, you want me to write a rebuttal to two professors who are – I said, I'll write it, but I'm not a clinician. Are you okay with it? He said, well, I'm the editor, uh, and yes, you write it, I'll print it. So you can read my rebuttal where I break the whole thing down, and I, it's not even a contest. I absolutely undid their argument with their own words. Now, why am I able to do that? Because I'm telling the truth. I'm, I'm stating facts. Well, it's physiology. Like you start looking at, you start looking at what we know about physiology and then you start plugging in all these different pieces, the rest, ice, compression, elevation, like you said, and it just doesn't add up. So I don't know why. So this is what confuses me is, and, and 
I'm, I'm in the same boat. Why I go, I have a master's degree in physiology. So I went through physiology, all this stuff, all these things, and actually quite proud of how I can understand how physiology works in our body. But then all of a sudden this rise protocol comes along and like I was on the sidelines with athletic training for many years. And like you said, it's just what you do. So it's like, how did, why did we stop critically thinking at some point? when we've learned all the stuff about physiology, but then these, they don't add up. It doesn't make sense. You can't plug them in there and make it work. Well, I have an answer to that. Okay. I want to hear it. Cause I'm, and, I'm curious. And, and I'm very serious about this. I I've had to think this through because this is what I have done for all of these years. I mean, it's, it's 15 years now, but I've been working against the rice protocol. So I looked at it and I've talked to, and when I say hundreds it's more than hundreds of athletic trainers, physical therapists, sports med doc, uh, hundreds and hundreds. And what I have determined is this. Now, I'm a reporter, okay, and I'm a teacher, so I, I'm not a clinician and I'm not a scientist, but I'm just telling you what I've observed. When you went to school and you learned about the Rice Protocol, it was very early in your education. Right. It was basically a throwaway 15 minutes. Sure. Rest, ice, compression, elevation, boom, go. Now, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about a player being unconscious on the field. You're not sure if they're breathing. And if you don't do the right thing, they could die. Well, that, that's why you never challenged the race protocol, because you went on to do hard stuff, important yeah, sure. things. And this was just a no-brainer, because everybody knew rice was nice, and there was nothing to question. Sure. So I believe that's what went wrong. And I, I had a clinician say to me uh, a few weeks ago, I, I, I feel terrible because I've been doing everything wrong for the past 25 years. I said, no, that's not true. You're doing one-tenth of one percent wrong. Everything right. else you were doing, you weren't doing anything else wrong. Yeah, this is a very small portion <clears throat> of what, you know, athletic trainers and physical therapists do as a whole. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it stems the point, too. It's like if we're in this profession to help and to encourage and to even I mean I don't I don't truly believe we're going to speed up a lot of the healing process but we can give it an optimal environment for healing to occur so if we can help the body do its thing and be more efficient at it then that's exactly what I want to do so what ticks me off is that yeah I've I've applied ice bags a lot of the way and I was just impeding things so that that doesn't sit well <laughs> well, I, I'm with you on the speeding up. Uh, I'm completely against when people say to me or they imply that I have suggested, which I'm just reporting the literature of how physiology works, right. will speed up recovery. No, it doesn't, no it, speed, doesn't. it doesn't speed it up. It normalizes the rate of recovery by removing the related obstacles. That's an entirely different answer. 100%. It doesn't speed anything up. Yep. It normalizes the rate of recovery by removing the related obstacles. Now, here, here's the back end of that. I am convinced that you can't speed things up outside of taking anabolic steroids, which of course could speed things up. But we're not, we're talking just straight human process. Right. I cannot speed up recovery, but I assure you I can slow it down. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. And that's exactly where you know, where I've gotten ticked off with this rest ice <laughs> compression elevation thing too. It's like, oh, well, so we weren't providing an optimal environment for healing to occur. We weren't doing the things that, you know, to just help our inflammatory system and everything 
uh, go along. So yeah, well, that's big. that's actually another great point when you call it the inflammatory process, because many people have combined the two words, inflammation and swelling, and kind of made them one term. They're not one term. They're two entirely different things. Inflammation is phase one or three phase of healing. It's inflammation, mm -hmm. repair, remodel. Without inflammation, repair, and remodel are compromised. They don't happen. Yep. So yep. Uh, in a great paper called Loading by Buckwater, uh, he has a quote in there by a guy by the name of Ledbetter. And Ledbetter says there can be inflammation without healing, but never healing without inflammation. So again, you have, like, you have this problem of, are you sure you want to, quote, prevent inflammation or reduce inflammation? And let's just say you did. I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the, of the idea that, okay, you, there's too much inflammation. How much too much is there? 7%, 14%, 29%? Hands different to feet, you're different to me. H how do you know when there's too much? Maybe there's not enough. How are you going to measure and regulate that? How would you know that stepping in the first place? Is there always too much? You see the problem? It, right. It's not. It, it's so ridiculous to think that your immune system is going to do it wrong. Now, are there outliers? Of course there are. So you have to pay, you have to pay attention if somebody is having too much inflammation. But show me in the textbooks where it says what too much is, mm -hmm. and then tell me that you think you should reduce it every time. When inflammation is by everyone's understanding who has studied this, in other words, every clinical textbook, every paper I've ever read, any doctor I ever talked to, any clinician I've ever spoken with, nobody's ever disagreed that inflammation is phase one of three phases of healing. Right. So why would you want to stop that? Which takes me to a spot where I love to go, and it's just walking through this whole thing. And now we've got what you shouldn't do. Well, what should you do? Well, if, if you're, uh, uh, is your audience mostly clinicians or who, who's the audience mostly? Yeah, I have a little bit of both. I have good basis of clinicians, but then a lot of active athletes or active people who are just interested in this kind of stuff too. <laughs> okay. So if, if you're an athletic trainer, then uh, if I use any terms that offend you or you use a different term, just flip, flip the term. I'm not on a trip. Okay. So what, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but if you're if you're a lay person and you're just, you're athletic and you just or you just want to know about this, just follow me and use my words for now. And then uh, Jamie can post the paper where I've written this all the way through that I uh, published in that journal where I rebutted the two professors who wrote about the Rice Protocol. So here's how it goes. At the top of the page, before you do anything, remember we're starting over, so everybody's fresh and clean now. At the top of the paper. Tell me what your goal is. Now, again, rhetorically, I'm going to answer my own questions, okay? I love that. Uh, now, <laughs> so at the top of the page, let's write our goal. Now, if you don't agree with my goal, then tell me, and I'll, we'll adjust it. But at the top of the page, the goal will be prevent further loss and regenerate that which has been destroyed. Does that sound like two fair things to put at the top of the page as the goal? Sounds fair. Okay. So everybody will know on your paper – Prevent further loss, regenerate that has been destroyed. Okay. What causes further loss? Well, uh, congestion in and around the damaged site will suffocate and kill otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma. So that's mm -hmm. something that's that's something we gotta deal with. We gotta deal with that congestion that's gonna suffocate and kill otherwise perfectly healthy cells. And then what else? What else causes additional damage? Well, disuse atrophy. What's that from? From disuse. 
So how are we going to deal with that? We want to, we want to, we don't want any more, we don't want a greater loss. So we got to deal with disuse atrophy. Okay. So what else? Well, uh, faulty scarring. Well, what causes mm -hmm. faulty scarring? What, and what happens if you have faulty scarring, then you lose functional range. So you've lost more, you've lost your functional range. And with faulty scarring, that's pretty much the result of, well, you could cause it with putting too much ice on, you could actually cause an increased collagen production, but let's just go with a straight process and you didn't, you didn't mess it up with ice. So we've got faulty scarring and you say, well, what causes that? Well, failure to reorganize the repair tissue. Remember there's three steps, inflammation, repair, remodel. If you don't remodel that tissue, it's highly likely you will develop faulty scarring, meaning that the tissue will not move in the direction of normal function. And if, well, for all the clinicians out there, uh, you know what that means when you have to go and break those adhesions. It's one of the most unpleasant days of your patient's life. So we don't like the break adhesions. So how do we avoid them? Well, that's further loss. You're losing functional range. So how do you deal with that? Well, you, you, you've got to reorganize to repair tissue. So we've got three things right there that are causing additional damage. You've got congestion in and around the damaged site that's suffocating and killing otherwise perfect healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma. You've got disuse atrophy, and you've got faulty scarring causing loss of functional range due to uh, adhesions. So that's the three things in, in, in the, on that side of the page. Remember, we've got two things at the top of the page. Prevent further loss, regenerate it, which has been destroyed. So let's go over to the other side there, the, the uh, regeneration. What do you have to do first? Basically required if you expect to regenerate tissue. So for anybody who's thinking about that, if you ever looked at an injury and you saw the bruising all under your skin, that's all ruptured vessels. You've got to rebuild that related vascular network. And it's like, oh, if you're following the hurricane world right now down in Florida, the causeway over to Sanibel Island was washed out. Well, guess what that means? Until you rebuild that causeway, you ain't getting from there to here. <laughs> so that's all you have to do. You have to rebuild the related vascular network and in your mind, look at it and say, oh, that's all that bruising under my skin. That's all ruptured vessels that leaked out blood. And I got to rebuild that related vascular network. Okay, so that's important. And then what else happens in the, remember our goal is to uh, regenerate that which has been destroyed. So you gotta rebuild the related vascular network and then, and then you've got to lower your myostatin levels. Now myostatin is something that most people have heard of, uh, but they may not be aware of, and I'm talking to the general public, as clinicians, I know you know this, but the general public may not know much about myostatin. And myostatin, what it basically does is it elevates from inactivity. And myostatin inhibits muscle regeneration. We don't so want you, <laughs> you've got to lower your myostatin levels. Okay, so now we've got five things that we need to focus on. We need to decongest the area in and around the damaged site. We've got to prevent disuse atrophy. We've got to reorganize the repair tissue for faulty, to prevent faulty scarring or adhesions. We've got to rebuild the related vascular network in and around the damaged site. And we've got to lower your myostatin levels. Now, here goes the big question. And you can answer this, Jamie. This would be you know, a hard question for you, so follow me. It's my big movement. Do you think that sitting still with a bag of ice wrapped tightly around the area while sticking it up in the air is going to decongest the area in and around the damaged site prevent disuse atrophy, reorganize the repaired tissue, prevent faulty scarring, reorg rebuild the related vascular network and lower your myostatin levels. Do you think that the RICE protocol would accomplish those five tests? No, you need movement. 
Okay, so we've got a problem here, don't we? Uh, in that the protocol, the most recognized reference recommended protocol in Western medicine, post-trauma. So it's the most recognized reference recommended protocol in Western medicine. It is the top of the heap. Yep. Doesn't address any of the five things you need to do. None of in them. Fact, in fact, it makes things worse. It actually traps the waste in and around the damaged site and prevents the natural flow of oxygen and supplies. So if that doesn't wipe the rice protocol out for you, I, call me and I'll try to help. That's <laughs> it. It doesn't work. So, so what does work? What do you need to do to accomplish those five tests? Is it five separate stimuluses? Well, let's just look at it for a second. Okay. To decongest the area in and around the damaged site. The waste has to move back out to your passive lymphatic system. Keyword, passive. Passive. So yep. what does that mean? It means you have to activate the muscles in and around the deficit, which will then squeeze, those muscles will squeeze those passive lymphatic vessels, push the waste up a chamber. The empty chamber now has negative pressure that pulls the waste out of the interstitial space and so on. So it takes the swelling out. In my visual, it's like milking a cow backwards. Yeah. Okay? So- so that's how you get the swelling out. Okay? That's now a good how, visual. I'm going to use that. And, and how, I want you to. And you don't even have to give me credit. You can, you can, I'll, I'll see it on the internet and you can say you made it up. It makes me happy. <laughs> so, so now let's look at the next thing. Disuse atrophy. What would prevent disuse atrophy? Well, uh, use. Imagine that. So you have to use it. So you gotta, you got to activate the muscles in and around the damaged site to move the waste to the passive lymphatic system, that same muscle activation or loading, as it's called in the literature, will cause the muscle to produce and release what's called PGC-alpha-1 that blocks the disuse atrophy. And it's like, what? Well, no, it's two things. Same, two, two things happen from the same effort. So you load the tissue, you add muscle activation, and that muscle activation will flush the waste out by the passive lymphatic system and simultaneously prevent disuse atrophy. Now, I like to say prevent a retard because I don't know whether you can prevent 100%. But whatever, it, it, that's, what the, that's what happens when you do it. Now, what about reorganizing the clear tissue? What, what do you need to do to do that? Well, it just so happens that the same stress or loading. Yep, adding stress. The same muscle activation that, that decongests the area in and around the damaged site that prevents a retard's tissue atrophy will simultaneously reorganize the repair tissue, knocking out the Foley scarring. And then what about rebuilding the related vascular network? Well, how would that work? What do we need to do there? Well, it just so happens that the same muscle activation, the same loading that decongests the area in and around the damaged site that prevents or retards disuse atrophy, that reorganizes the repair tissue, will simultaneously, at the same time that it's doing the other three things, it causes what's called sprouting angiogenesis. It rebuilds the related vascular network in and around the damaged site. Now, what about that myostatin thing? How are we going to get rid of that? Well, it just so happens that the same stress that decongests the area in and around the damaged site, that prevents a retarded disuse activity, that reorganizes the repair tissue to prevent faulty scoring, that rebuilds the related vascular network in and around the damaged site, that same loading, that same muscle activation lowers your myostatin levels. Now, isn't that amazing that one stimulus accomplishes all five of the needed tasks? So it sounds like the old movement is medicine, walk it off is kind of good. Yep, it was correct the whole time. <laughs> and I've, I've often had people say to me uh, in, in all the years of all the different people I've talked to, but it's a very common thing they'll say. 
Do you think that your dad's generation, meaning my dad's generation, started the walk it off thing? And I said, oh, no, not at all. I believe it started at the beginning of time. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that's how people have been. Yeah. I yep. mean, could you could you imagine the group moving across trying to find shelter and food and someone stubs their toe, stubs their toe and they sit and, and moan about it for four days? I mean, come on. Yep. It was it's it awesome. was get up, keep moving. So, so here, here's here's my belief on the whole thing. I believe that our innate intelligence, the great creator, whatever you believe, however you believe things was so smart. That knew that we couldn't possibly come down and heal every person individually one at a time. So something had to be built into our system to cause healing because we're going to get hurt. Okay, stuff's going to go wrong. And as a group, you're going to get hurt. So the, what, what the great creator did or the innate intelligence did was said, okay, what can I count on people doing? Moving. Yeah. You could count on it. So built into your immune system is the mechanism to heal thyself. There and is, yeah. and you, you do that by loading the tissue, which would be walking, climbing, stepping, lifting, whatever, all of those things cause your body to decongest the area in and around the damaged site, prevent or retard disuse atrophy, because good heavens, you wouldn't want atrophy for no reason. You know, the, the, you, you, you say you get hurt and you expect your leg to be, you know, coming out of the cast, you expect your leg to be significantly atrophied. How about if I could tell you and I could prove to you and I could produce witnesses to this, that you don't have to have atrophy coming out of the cast. Yep. That you can, you can activate the muscle the entire time you're in the cast. And when you come out of the cast, there may be some loss. And most of the muscle is still there. Now, how do we know that? Well, because I've done it. We, we, the company that I work with has been doing this for over 40 years. Yep. I work with over 100 professional athletic teams, not counting minor leagues. If I count minors, there's over 200 teams. From all of the people that I have met, I get the stories back. And they tell me things like I, got a, I had a a photo sent back to me, a player's name not identified, so we didn't break any rules. But the player uh, had had a Tommy John surgery. And uh, with that, his hand was significantly swollen. And the trainer sent me back the photo, and he said, I thought you'd like to see these two photos. One, post-op, hand swollen like wearing, like wearing a mitten. It looked like one of those oven things. Right. When you, when you, I mean, it looked like I, the, you couldn't see any space between the fingers. So it was all swollen. And the other photo was 72 hours later, gone, I love nothing it. there, nothing there. And I'm actually recording a, uh, a re, uh, what would you call it? A video. I'm recording an interview uh, at the end of the month with an athletic trainer, uh, a physical therapist, a DPT, athletic ATC, CSCS. So he has all three credentials and been in the, in the majors for uh, over 25 years, probably approaching 30 years at this point. And what happened a couple of years ago was one of his athletes, and this is really important that we stay with this because I, I want you to hear this story. And you're going to hear it uh, as, soon as, as soon as I have it. You know I'm going to post it. I can't wait. He agreed to do the, the interview now. And what happened was he had a player with a longitudinal quad tear. Uh, and by the way, off air, I will give you his name and phone number if you want to confirm this for your audience. I just don't want his name and phone number set on the air. Fair enough. Uh, so this is with a major sports team. And what happened was the player had a longitudinal quad tear. And they immediately began the muscle activation technique that I recommend, loading the tissue post-trauma. Once the bleeding is stopped, they started activating the muscles in and around the damaged site to decongest the area.
retard disuse atrophy, to reorganize repairing tissue, to rebuild the related vascular network, and to lower the myostatin levels. So right away, they're in and they're doing it. About six and a half hours post-trauma. And this is a longitudinal quad there. Oh, by the way, they measured the blood in the quad with ultrasound prior to beginning the treatment. Ooh, so awesome. they know what they have. They know, yeah. Okay, so next day, they start, you know, continue, they continue with treatments. They did six and a half hours in, and they continue for the next two weeks or so, whatever. He'll, he'll tell the time, but maybe it's 16 days. I don't know what it was. But he sends me an email, a post uh, after everything's over. He says, Gary, I got to tell you what just happened. We had a player with a longitudinal quad tear, measured the blood in the quad with ultrasound, activate the muscles in and around the damaged site for about six and a half hours. Next day, measured the blood in the quad with ultrasound. His word, gone, G-O-N-E, gone, <laughs> period. That's so Turn, cool. Period. Turned a four to six week injury into running in three days and playing in the world championships in 10. Holy smokes. That's now, valuable. Now, now you could be you could be tempted you could be tempted to think well that can't be true well first of all it is true well you had and, the ultrasound yeah well it is true but and but experience here, <laughs> here's why it's true let's just say you had followed the rice protocol and you had iced it compressed it elevated and what did I miss rested it okay let's just say you had done that you did the rice protocol and you rest ice compressed elevation what do you think it would have looked like the next day. Yeah, I yeah. Huge okay, and how, how much pain? How much, and how much pain? <laughs> and how so and how much. well how well would their knee bend? Yeah, and would they be on crutches or immobile? That would have continued for three to ten days, weaning off the crutches accordingly. Now, with that said, you say, so what would have happened if you had done that? Well, the congestion in and around the damaged site would have suffocated and killed otherwise perfect healthy cells who are not involved in the initial trauma. Now, on top of that you would have had significant systemic tissue atrophy because you wouldn't have been using that limb at all. Now, on top of that, you would have had faulty scarring because there's no muscle activation. There's no loading of the tissue at all. So it would have been a mess. There's no rebuilding the related vascular network, although there is automatic pilot trying, you know, your, your immune system is trying to rebuild the related vascular network with or without the loading. It's trying to do it. But that would have been very inefficient compared to what you could do. And then on top of that, myostatin levels would have elevated and would have inhibited muscle regeneration. So that's why it takes four to six weeks. Right. Mismanaged, it takes four to six weeks. Managed right. properly, we now know how long it really takes. Three Not days long. running, 10 days playing in world championships. So what did his email end with? Gary, I'm shocked at how fast doing what you said to do sped up recovery. And I immediately called him and I said, uh, it didn't speed things up. But it, I've been doing this 25 years. I'm telling you, Gary, it, it's a four to six week problem. I said, no, mismanaged. It's a four to six week problem. Now you know how long it really takes. That's Three good. days running, yeah. 10 days playing a world championship. So what's the end of that story? What really matters? Well, that individual played in the world championships. That individual won a gold medal. That individual stood on the stage while our national anthem was playing in the background and had a gold medal put around their neck. Amen. That's, that's that about. wouldn't yep. have happened. <laughs> wouldn't have. Their entire life would have been different. Whenever anyone asks, they say, well, I was hurt. I, you know, nothing I could do. It's a four to six week problem and I couldn't play. Now they get to tell that story to their grandchildren sitting on their knee and for anyone else who asked them for the rest of their life. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what matters. That's what matters. 
that's why we do what we do is to keep people doing what they love. And that's fantastic. Well, Gary, I've got another question for you here. So with the popularity of cold plunges and the value of these and what's in the research about these. So can you talk about the difference between ice immersion and then ice packs, like the traditional throwing ice on an injury? Well, two entirely different processes, and they, they, they really shouldn't even be on the same page, uh, but they are. And I had to study both. I also had to go into the tri- cryo chambers where they're blowing cold air on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had to do them all. If you're going to write the book, Ice the Illusionary Treatment Ops, you're going to have to deal with this stuff. And by the way, I had to deal with heat also. Sure. Uh, so that all became part of one. And what we know about ice plunges is it takes significant mental discipline, which has great value for an athlete, for anyone actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get in the zone and you do it, and your body and and, and you have things that happen inside your body, and uh, and it's it's very good. There there are things that happen that are good that that have to do with discipline and control. Okay, I agree, it does that. Uh, you're overheated. And you want to drop your body temperature quicker? That'll work for that. But but just beware that the literature clearly states. Not there are some people who have some bogus uh, research out there. But if you go to the clean stuff and you actually read it, you'll see that basically everybody agrees that if you go in a cold bath, an ice bath, after you train, it dampens both vascular and muscular adaptation. Now, why in the world would you ever want to dampen muscular and vascular adaptation after you train? So you shouldn't want to do it for that. But if you do want to do it, just don't do it after you train. Get it as far away from your training as you can. And Kelly Stard, who I do a lot of work with, and uh, I've been on his podcast where I explained all this clinically before. What Kelly says is, but there is value. And I said, no, I, I agree there's value. Just be careful what you how you accomplish the value you want. Yeah, that's the, that's the take home is the post treatment thing cuz that's what's been so widespread I know in training rooms as well. But like with the with the emergence of cold plunges coupled with like sauna now too. I feel like that's a much better application of use for like the ice immersion with the sauna and the, as opposed to doing it post activity. If you're doing it for a reason other than facilitating recovery, then it's not my category. I'm, I'm not, fine, do it. But just realize if you do it post-training, it's going to dampen both vascular and muscular adaptation. So be careful what you're doing and why. Right. Uh, now, if, oh, you, if, you tell me, if you tell me that you think that it has discipline value, I 100% agree. Because you really got to get yourself in the zone to sit in that tub for 15 minutes or 10 minutes, whatever they're recommending. I mean that it, you got to you have to be there. Yeah, that's but, challenging. Yes, but but once you do it, it's like anything else you did that's hard. And if that discipline is good for you, then like Kelly Starrett says, uh, that's the supple leopard guy you mentioned in the beginning. Just recognize it's not a recovery technique. Interesting, and I know you've got some stuff out on that too. Well, the other big thing on that, by the way, if you just want to touch it, is the heat, because people often say to me. Well, since you're against ice, are you for heat? And the answer is no. And you go, well, wait a minute. How can you be against both? It's the loading. It's the muscle activation that accomplishes the task. That's what recruits the stem cells to the damaged site. That's what moves the waste, the nourishment and waste to the system. It's what prevents the tissue saturation, the organized repair tissue. That's what lowers the myostatin levels. It's the loading that does it. So what does heat do? 
Well, heat passively dilates the vessels mm-hmm. and increases the flow in without an exit plan. Just remember, if you're going to put heat on, you better have an exit plan. You got to move. Because you're, yep. you're, you're dilating vessels that are increasing the flow in. That does not increase the flow out. That has nothing to do with the lymphatic drainage. And the big takeaway there is there's not too much fluid coming to the damaged site under normal conditions. There's too little leaving. Leaving, yeah. Okay? That's what's wrong. And, of course, the RICE protocol accomplishes the exact opposite task. The RICE protocol does slow it down going in, but it gives no assistance whatsoever coming out. In fact, it inhibits the drainage. So there isn't too much fluid coming. There's too little leaving. Swelling is not a good or a bad thing. It's merely the accumulation of waste at the end of the inflammatory cycle that you have not yet evacuated. That's all it is. So if you're going to put heat on, you better be loading the tissue, activating the muscle. Say say you put a heat pack uh, on your shin because it's swollen around your ankle and your shin. Well, then do ankle pumps while you're doing it because you're going to increase the flow in. There's already too much coming in. I'm sorry. There's already not enough going out. So don't send more in unless you have an exit plan. Yeah, that's a good way to phrase that. You have explained this all very well, per usual. I knew you would. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's, uh, uh, I'm happy that, that you're able, that you're willing to let me come on. And, and if, and if you get a person uh, out there, an athletic trainer out there or an athlete who as a result of this is not mismanaged or doesn't mismanage someone and they get to win a gold medal and have the national anthem played in the background while the medals put around their neck, that makes it all worth it. No matter how much time it takes. And by the way, that could be the high school pitcher getting a D one scholarship. Yep. Because that's his gold medal. Or just getting somebody back squatting again who was told they'd never squat again. That's well, that's pretty awesome stuff. Well, that, that's what we're trying to do. It's, it's helping people get away from the illusionary treatment option. Yep. I like it. It's a good title for the book, by the way. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's a good one. Thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate your time today. And um, I will be posting this very, very soon. And if anybody's got questions, I know where to send them. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And then you, you can give my contact information to anybody that asks. I love it. You heard it here, folks. That's how you can get a hold of Gary. Is we um, he's got a great website too. It's just GaryRinal.com, correct? Yes. And you're not you're not on the social media platform much, are you? Or are you now? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at the Anti Iceman. Awesome. Actually, okay, you well, know, as, as you just said that, you just you just made me realize something that uh, I want to uh, give me just a second because I'm gonna pull it up so I don't do it wrong. Everybody, hold on. I'm sorry. I just got give me a second to pull it up. Uh, September 24th, so about a month ago, a little over a month ago, in a website article uh, that uh, Tom House, I don't know if you know that name or not, but he's very, very well known in the pitching world. He's a pitching coach, and he's he's way beyond that. He's written many books, and he's he's like the top of the heap. And it's where many of the top pitchers go to. That's where you go to get instruction from him. And Lindsay Barra, who is Yogi Barra's granddaughter, uh, is a writer for ESPN and New York Times and all kinds of stuff. But she also writes for this for this uh, this blog. And they were interviewing someone by the name of uh, 
Clayton Kershaw, who's a major league pitcher for the Dodgers. And if you don't know that name, uh, just Google it because he's one of the top paid pitchers in all major league baseball. And the title is called arm care quote. I don't ice anymore. Ice kind of feels like a thing of the past. Unless there's an acute injury, ice really isn't around much in the big leagues. And that's a quote, end quote, by Clayton Kernshaw. Now, why does that matter? When I first got the Major League Baseball 12 years ago, uh, almost everybody was icing. Now, more than two out of every three Major League pitchers, according to my count, which I believe is accurate, more than two out of every three Major League pitchers use our technology. And this, I mean, look how big, that's a huge thing. I don't use ice anymore. Kind of feels like it's a thing of the past. Are you kidding me? Did that really happen? Well, yeah, it did happen. And I can tell you why. I've been to every training room. Yes, you have. You have. Well, thank you, Gary. I appreciate you so much. This has been amazing. Well, I had more fun than you know. So thank you. (laughs) Well, I love it. All right. Well, I'll keep you posted on when I put this out and so that you have access to it. And um, I am going to have you email that uh, rebuttal paper to me, if you would. That'd be fantastic. I'll I'll send it back on your text. Just so you have it easily. Awesome. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. The meltdown continues. The meltdown continues. I like it. Thank you for listening to the True North Podcast. I greatly appreciate any input you have. And if you have ideas or suggestions for future guests or podcast topics, please send me a DM to at True North Athletic Therapy on Instagram or fire me off an email to Jamie, J-A-I-M-E at truenorthat.com. This podcast is listener supported. If you choose, you can visit my podcast web profile on Spotify to contribute.